talk about white fragility. This is an entire movement that's oriented around ensuring that I will sacrifice my child's exposure to accurate history because I don't want them to be presented with ideas that may be new or uncomfortable. And welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's pod is a candid conversation with Julie Kohler. Julie is an acclaimed writer with a PhD in family social science whose work has appeared in CNN, The Washington Post, Fortune Magazine, and The Daily Beast. She has two decades of experience working in philanthropy, advocacy, and higher education, and is a fellow in residence at the National Women's Law Center and a highly sought-after speaker in topics that pertain to gender justice, politics, and policy. Julie is also the co-creator and host of White Picket Fence, the winner of the 2022 Communicator Award for Best Society and Culture Podcast. White Picket Fence looks at how suburban women have become some of our most contested political actors. Over three seasons, the podcast has examined the social disruptions that have pushed this political realignment among women. Julie points out that motherhood itself is being weaponized for political gain, one side for greater justice, the other in opposition to it. I'm having Julie on today to discuss the mobilization of white suburban women against democracy. In the name of protecting children and parental rights, this particular type of motherhood has been manipulated to advance some very dark political agendas. You can see the efforts of this work on our school boards with school choice, anti-CRT laws, and anti-LGBTQ laws. It's the ugly underbelly of what should be a positive group looking out for what's best for kids, but who are in reality using their identity as moms to truly undermine other people's rights. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, critically acclaimed writer and speaker, strategy consultant, and host of the award-winning White Picket Fence podcast, Julie Kohler. Welcome, Julie. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. Well, thank you for joining me. I'm excited to talk to you because you have been really clear in your fascination with mothers as a political force. And that really speaks to me personally. I started this project because I was a mother and I couldn't just do nothing as the world that I brought my son in burned. So I understand this passion for parents who want to make the world a better place for their kids. What I don't understand is using the love and devotion we have for our children in order to destroy, to make things worse rather than better for the kids. Yeah, I know. I, it, it's really in one level completely shocking that we're at this moment where we're seeing this kind of activism among a very specific set of mothers, white conservative mothers. But on the other hand, I have to say it's not surprising in that we've had a long tradition of this form of activism, sadly, in the United States. And this is sort of the latest incarnation. And I think it reflects a conservative movement that's kind of scared. They are really scared that they are losing of, of losing power. And so they are going to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And they are going to pull out these tried and true methods that they've used at other backlash moments in history and see if they can make it work again. Yeah. I mean, I guess in their minds, they are making it better if uh, the white Christian patriarchy is where you want to live and you don't want to listen to ugly history about our past or talk about people's differences, then you are trying to make it better. It's just not real. You're not dealing with real life. You're dealing with a fictionalized version of it. 
a whitewashed yeah, version, exactly. if you will. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. This season on White Pick Events, you're doing a deep dive into this idea of mothers as a political force. Season three left off talking about the challenges that families, especially mothers with young children, were experiencing in America. But now, instead of channeling that struggle into, say, public investments that would make caregiving easier and less expensive, or putting efforts towards getting the childhood tax credit back, or bolstering access to affordable college, or getting guns out of schools, things that would really help children, um, the right is weaponizing mothers against things like public school education and books. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, on one level, like I kind of couldn't believe it as I start, started to see this pivot because, you know, when we ended the last season of the podcast, we were at this moment where we thought the Build Back Better Act, what eventually became what's called the Inflation Reduction Act, but was then called the Build Back Better Act, where we thought it might pass. And we were going to see this once in a generation investment in childcare. We were going to finally become the last industrialized nation to provide paid family leave for all families. We were going to expand the child tax credit, make the burdens of, you know, the financial burden of raising children a little less hard for most families. But instead, we started to see all these women, predominantly women, showing up at school board meetings and instead like going after the one remaining public benefit that we really have as families, which is our public schools. And I just thought like, how did this happen? But I think, you know, we really try to kind of debrief and examine like what, what was able to transpire in that period. And I think what we had were a set of very conservative but also savvy communication professionals mm. who were able to tap into that frustration and overwhelm that we were all feeling, especially those of us who are moms with young kids during the early days of the COVID pandemic. And instead of funneling that to its appropriate targets, that exhaustion mm. and that frustration and trying to get things that would actually make things better, they weaponized it and turned it and and unfortunately turned it into really a war on public schools. And so they were able to, you know, kind of recognize there's something that's in the zeitgeist right now, this frustration, this, you know, like a, a lot of us are really suffering. And then they were able to really turn it on its head. Yeah. I mean, both parties have been able to use the power of the mama bear, right? This danger of getting between a mother and her child is a palpable force. Most mothers do have this innate need to protect their children. This isn't something that belongs solely to Republicans. And there's, you know, a big history in America of mothers getting together to get things done. You know, moms demand action to address gun violence. Mothers Against dri Driving was instrumental in new laws that made us safer. But it's the idea of using this energy, this kind of power that could, you know, lift a car off your child if they were trapped and turning it towards bigotry and hate. And that confuses me. It feels like a perversion of the power of the mother. It's literally using the claim of protecting children to hurt other people. And I find that alarming. I mean, mothers can be a real force for change. We can agree to that. But there's this mythology to mothers, right? This idea that you should defer to us because we know what's best for our kids. But the question is, whose kids, right? Which mothers know best? Because what if the actions they're taking on behalf of their children is, like you're saying, a danger to our democracy or a danger to our public schools? 
So with that in mind, I'd love to talk a little bit about the biggest group that's doing this right now, which is Moms for Liberty. Do you mind if we do that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to give a little background on Moms for Liberty if people don't know it, and then I'm going to get your thoughts on it. So for those of you who don't know, Moms for Liberty is considered a grassroots organization that was focused on the good of children in American society. It was originally founded in Florida in 2021, with their focus being the opposition to mask mandates in schools. The group's founding documents claimed that the organization would organize and educate and empower parents to defend their parental rights. But even though it started with just masks, the group would go on to advocate for book bans and classroom censorship and the banning of teachings of slavery, race, racism, LGBTQ issues and community. And like I said, the group claims to be a grassroots organization, but I think to what Julie was saying earlier, the founders actually have incredibly strong ties to high-ranking elected officials and national anti-LGBTQ groups and school boards and major media. The foundation of the organization was laid out by these three women who are basically from very affluent social circles in Florida who were vehemently anti-gay, anti-trans, just super conservative Christian white women with major connections to the Republican Party and their donors, people like Heritage Foundation, Koch Family, Turning Point USA. So in truth... Moms for Liberty is actually an extreme right-wing group, but instead of being this, you know, bunch of armed white guys in khaki pants chanting Jews will not replace us, this is a group of like well-groomed, glamorous soccer mom types claiming that they won't co-parent with the government. So what is your take on this group right now? Because they are really growing in numbers and something we need to keep our eye on. Yeah, they really are something that we have to take seriously because they've proven themselves to be a real threat. And so, you know, I think many of the images that we saw when Moms for Liberty was first sort of taking hold was these chaotic school board meetings where people were screaming and it sort of seemed like they were throwing spaghetti against the wall, right? I mean, like they're talking about mask mandates and, you know, anti, you know, an anti-trans stuff and CRT. And it just was this really weird kind of combination of just random issues that they seem to be, you know, ranting and about it in, in these school board meetings. And it is, you know, and, and we really go into the destructive, the harassment, the, um, you know, the extreme tactics that they deployed in those early days. One of the women we interview in the first episode of this season of the podcast is Jennifer Jenkins. And she always says that she apologizes to America because she defeated one of the women who ended up being a co-founder of Moms for Liberty, Tina Deskovich. So Tina was a incumbent um, Republican school board member in Brevard County, Florida. In 2020, Jennifer Jenkins, who was a public school uh, employee, she's a speech language pathologist with a deep commitment to improving public schools, ran against her, was kind of an underdog. Not only is she running against an incumbent, she's a Democrat in a heavily red county, but she won. And immediately after she won, Tina Deskovich started mobilizing all of these people. And a lot of them were not even women that had kids in public schools. They might have had kids in private schools, or they might have homeschooled their kids, or they were older and didn't even have kids in public schools any longer. But they would show up and they really unleashed this very extreme harassment campaign against Jennifer Jenkins that resulted in you know, the Department of Children and Families in Florida being called on a false um, allegations of child abuse, people showing up at her home, staging what she calls a mini insurrection in school board meetings, really horrific tactics. 
eventually she spoke about these, uh, about the harassment that she endured at a school board meeting and the video of her statement went viral. And I would really encourage people to check it out because it's a, it's, it's chilling, alarming, horrifying that we could have these kind of tactics used. But what it meant for Moms for Liberty is that they focused less on sowing chaos at school board meetings and more on enacting statewide legislation. And so in some ways, it made them even more dangerous. And what they found in Florida was, of course, a very, very powerful ally in a young new governor who is looking to distinguish himself and looking to gain national notoriety because he has big political ambitions in Ron DeSantis. And Moms for Liberty has worked hand in glove with the DeSantis administration to pass some of the most extreme legislation in this country. And it's legislation that's now being served as a model for red states all over the country and is clearly forming the basis for what DeSantis is trying to lay the groundwork for an eventual presidential run. So we have to take Moms for Liberty really seriously, even if, and I think this is true, their claims about how how grassroots they really are don't pan out. Like I, you know, like we we have a, another expert on on the first episode of the show, and he's like, oh, I don't know if they really, if they really have the members that they claim to have. But mm. in some ways, it doesn't even matter because what they are is a very well oiled communication machine with backing, financial backing, training, and other forms of assistance from very powerful conservative groups. And so they are platformed and positioned, and they have these connections to Republican officials that mean that they can pass major legislation and, and you know, kind of all under the guise of we're just regular mama bears, you know, who started this at our kitchen table in Brevard County, Florida. Um, so yeah, we need to be really paying attention to this movement. Yeah, this cute white suburban mom look is deceitful because it masks the extremism that's there. And, you know, this group was aligned with the Stop the Steal movement. They were aligned with the big lie. They're intertwined with Proud Boys and other hate groups. And so despite this sort of kitchen table startup narrative, they're actually operated by professional communications people and seasoned political operatives. And they use those political operatives in combination with the right wing media. They're very connected to the right wing media. I've seen the founders on red carpets with Fox News personalities, and they're basically harnessing the anger of regular people. So the regular people on the ground might not even understand that they're actually being manipulated by these big money far right groups pushing their own agenda in the guise of taking care of the kids, right? These are the women amplifying the false claims against healthcare for trans youth and the voices that don't agree with them, they call them groomers. Or if there's ideas that they don't agree with them, they call that indoctrination. And this isn't a small group. Whether they are as big as they say they are or not, they started just over two years ago. And they're now, they now have 200 county chapters nationwide. They're in 35 states. The organization claims to have at least 200,000 members. And the members are running for or are now on school boards or spend their time petitioning school boards. One of the original members is now on the Florida Board of Education, nominated by Ron DeSantis himself. When Ron DeSantis signed the Don't Say Gay Bill, he was surrounded by Moms for Liberty. When Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds was um, signing the bill outlawing transgender students from playing sports. She was surrounded by Moms for Liberty. So this is a huge and powerful organization, sort of laser focused on their goals. And 
they're not something that we can be uh, overlooking because it's, I think it's no secret and I'm sure it's no surprise to you, but to anybody else who's listening, the Republicans have wanted to eliminate the Department of Education for years. And MAGA is certainly not pretending that they want to share this country with anyone who doesn't look exactly like them anymore. So in the name of parental rights and parental choice, these groups are undermining, like you said, one of our last great public institutions, public school, so they can destroy it and then remake it in their own image. So the the aim, I think, is to actually defund and eliminate public schools altogether, moving us to kind of a charter or religious school private system where they can discriminate and they can decide what they're teaching and they can decide what kids get to come into their class. And many Republican-controlled states, Moms for Liberty is out there working in conjunction with the GOP and far-right activists to actually, and I'm going to use the word groom, the next generation of voters. So they end up conservative and right wing, you know, unprepared for critical thought and therefore predisposed against liberal open mindedness from the very beginning, from from their school days. And the goal is basically to kill progressiveness in its cradle. What do you think about that? I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think this is why they are so incredibly dangerous. One of the other guests we have have on in the first episode of this season of the podcast is a Florida state representative named Michelle Rayner. Michelle is the first openly queer black woman state legislator in the in the state of Florida. And she was first elected in 2020 and had a front row seat to this very cozy relationship, an unusual cozy relationship between Moms for Liberty her Republican colleagues in the Florida State Legislature and the DeSantis administration. She said she would roam the halls of the, of the legislature and be able to see Moms for Liberty basically have free reign in the in the state capitol. There were areas, she would go into members-only areas of the, of the state capitol where only members of the legislature are supposed to be allowed. And there would be Moms for Liberty. So they really had like carte blanche in order to be able to confer with legislators in order to really advance this legislative agenda. And yeah, I mean, I think what the other, you know, the real value that they have, this was not a coincidence that um, DeSantis wanted to shore up and gin up greater support among his weakest demographic, which was young women voters. Now, we have to remember that he won his 2018 bid for governor by less than 30,000 votes. In Florida, that's like, you know, a tiny amount of votes. I think it's about 0.5%. It's less than 1%. And he saw a real opportunity to put a nice face that could help gin up support and build his base in an area where he was weak. And we saw it yield really incredible political results. So the chair of the state Republican Party in Florida is a man named Christian Ziegler. His wife, surprise, surprise, is Bridget Ziegler, the third co-founder of Moms for Liberty, who since stepped away from the organization. Um, and he's openly said that Moms for Liberty played a critical role in driving up support for DeSantis and Republican candidates in Florida among young women, especially younger white women. So this was a, I would say, a very calculated and craven move, both in its policy aims of defunding public education and its political aims in building out this sort of, you know, these these white suburban foot soldiers to be part of the DeSantis 
campaign for his reelect. And then probably it's no, no coincidence that they're now national to lay the groundwork for a future run for the presidency. Yeah, it's scary stuff. I mean, this tightness between this group and politicians and the media. So these moms are literally out here reshaping our education. And then the GOP politicians are legislating towards that agenda because they can say, see, this is what the public wants. This is what they're out here asking for. And then the media reports it. Here's what's happening. It's all sort of symbiotic. And you can see it in full display in Florida, you know, the state where woke goes to die. Instead of a word from our sponsor today, I want to talk to you about the Supreme Court race in Wisconsin on April 4th. I don't normally do this, but this race is so essential, I'm skipping the ads to make a plea to get you involved in this election. The whole purpose of my show is to get people to care about politics and democracy, and this election is essential to both. Right now, Wisconsin has the most gerrymandered map in the country. The 4-3 far-right Supreme Court actually drew the district maps for the state, so six of the eight congressional districts went to Republicans, despite the state being a 50-50 split with progressive leanings. This court has allowed almost every and all form of voter suppression, so Republicans also control 65% of the state house, despite only having, at best, 50% of the vote. As soon as Roe was overturned, that same 65% immediately reinstated an abortion law from 1849, one of the most extreme in the country, and that's what the people of Wisconsin are living under right now. Medical students actually have to leave the state to complete their OBGYN training so as to not break the law. It's lunacy. Wisconsin is also the ultimate swing state, and it's their Supreme Court who will decide if Wisconsin is allowed to send electors to Washington who didn't win the popular vote, potentially swinging the 2024 presidential election to Republicans, even if the Democrats win. We have one week to make sure pro-democracy, pro-choice, Janet Protosiewicz beats anti-abortion, anti-contraception, hyper-conservative partisan Dan Kelly, who voted to overturn the 2020 election and hand Wisconsin's 10 key electoral votes to Trump against the will of the voters. The Republicans are throwing tens of millions of dollars at this race to ensure they win. So those of us who believe in fairness and democracy have to fight fire with fire. To help, go to wisdems.org. That's W-I-S-D-E-M-S dot org. If you can give money, give money. If you can't, give time. Spring elections are almost always ignored, but the results of this one election will not only be instrumental to the lives of people in Wisconsin, but it will play an outsized role in how our presidential elections are decided in the future. At the end of the day, elections come down to turnout. Turnout comes down to enthusiasm, and enthusiasm comes down to us. Thank you so much for listening. Go to wisdoms.org. And now, back to Julie Kohler. The thing is, it's not even just about book banning, is it? I mean, Moms for Liberty has targeted county guidelines that were written to protect trans kids, you know, giving them the right to dress and use bathrooms according to the gender they identify with. They call school board members who try to protect these kids pedophiles. These are the people talking about it's being indoctrination. If parents or teachers talk about LGBTQ identity. Moms for Liberty is the group that encourages people to report on their teachers if they are discussing anything they've considered divisive in the classrooms. And anything divisive can be, you know, anything from the LGBTQ community to uh, racial discrimination to discrimination in any way. You're not supposed to mention discrimination now, not on sex, not on religion. So how do you discuss civil rights if you can't discuss 
discrimination. You you don't, which is why they're banning books on Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks, you know? So for anyone to discuss anything that these groups deem as disruptive, they get put on a list. And the Moms for Liberty people are using that list to target teachers. And they're succeeding. They're doing really well. I mean, there's a reason that teachers in Florida have ended up just taking books off their shelves because they're worried that they can't get it right. You know, that better to teach nothing than give a child access to the wrong book and then end up in a felony situation. Yeah, no, I think it's it's going to it's going to remake public education in Florida for a generation and in some really terrifying ways. I mean, you're going to have a whole generation of children who are not receiving accurate information in their schools. You know, teachers are going to self-censor because they are afraid literally of losing their livelihoods should they make a statement. I mean, I think that what they're trying to do is almost empower like a grassroots vigilante force, right? That's constantly monitoring teachers, school board members. And frankly, I think part of what they're trying to do is dissuade responsible, you know, common sense people who actually care about our schools and our communities from running for office. Because when you look at what happens to Jennifer Jenkins and when you look at what happens to school board members who are just standing up for really common sense policies, who don't even view themselves as being in a partisan position or carrying out a partisan agenda, they are getting targeted in the most horrific ways. And so who's going to sign up for that? And the other thing that Ron DeSantis has done, which is just really unprecedented, is he's trying to make all of these school board elections partisan. And he's investing, he's raising money and actually backing individual school board candidates across the state. So, you know, it is whatever it used to cost to run for school board, not that much in most communities. It's a local race. You probably don't need to raise a ton of money to be able to to mount a campaign for school board. They are jacking up the, the price, basically, the campaign price. And so, again, it's dissuading who's going to even step off the sidelines and volunteer. So I think it's going to have a really chilling effect, not only on our educational system, but on our democracy in ways that it's going to take a long time to reverse. Yeah, I think it will if we don't certainly get smart to it right away. And it comes back to yeah. your saying who. You kept saying who. And I, I think it always comes back to that idea that's rattling around inside my head that I mentioned earlier about parental choice. You know, what parents? Whose choice? Because I'm a parent and that isn't what I want. I want my kid to learn real history, including black history and all of its injustice. I want him to know about the full human experience and about LGBTQ communities. I want him to learn about racism and bigotry and inequality, not so he feels bad, but so we can all grow beyond it. These mom's choices are not my choices. So why do they get to decide? You know, talking about giving parents a voice, they clearly don't want to give parents a voice. They just don't want to hear any other voices but their own. And they talk about protecting kids, but they only mean certain kinds of kids because they're absolutely targeting kids that don't fit into their box. I mean, gender identity indoctrination, they're saying, is one of the most dangerous threats facing American children today. And then the media goes out and repeats that, and then politicians will legislate on that. But that's not even remotely true. In fact, the most dangerous thing facing children in America today is gun violence. It's the number one killer of children in 
in America, more than disease, more than car accidents. Banning and talking about LGBTQ people is not going to help with the children dying. In fact, all it does is raise the suicide rate of LGBTQ children, right? The CDC has already said that one in four LGBTQ teens attempted suicide in 2021 and that half of them considered suicide. Research shows us that adults who use trans teens' authentic name and pronouns, it really improves their mental health and reduces thoughts of this suicide exponentially. But these moms are out here making sure we do the exact opposite things that will help these children, right? So they talk about helping the kids and parents' voice, but it's certainly not the voice of parents of LGBTQ children or parents of children in the Black community, parents of children in any marginalized community. And so it it worries me because who gets to decide when did they become the arbiters of this? And it's hard not to see white Christian supremacy all over this. Absolutely. I mean, what they're basically saying is that I, as a white parent, have a right to never feel uncomfortable. And even though my my perspective is a minority perspective in this country, which it is, this is a minoritarian movement, it's a counter-majoritarian movement, but they will dismantle democracy in order to achieve their goals. And so, you know, it it really is stunning to think that, you know, (laughs) talk about white fragility. This is an entire (laughs) movement that's, you know, that's oriented around ensuring that, you know, I will sacrifice my child's exposure to accurate history because I don't want them to be presented with ideas that may be new or uncomfortable to them. Like, I mean, the extreme ways. But I think this is sort of, you know, what they need to do, right? When when presented with, you know, your ideas aren't popular. So what do you do? You create a false moral panic. Check. You dismantle democracy in order to ensure that you have power and that you can maintain power. Check. And then you have carte blanche to be able to go to town and and make this the law of the land and enshrine a very particular understanding um, into law. And this goes back to something you're going to be talking about in this season of White Picket Fence, was what does a good mom look like? Because if a good mom is a white mom, then we have a problem. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, it, it, it's so clear, and this is where I also hold the media responsible for who we're lifting up in these images of motherhood and why it is so imperative that we uh, really look at the diversity of experiences of motherhood and the many forms of activism that mothers engage in on behalf of their children. But, you know, Moms for Liberty has had a incredibly disproportionate amount of media coverage compared to, you know, like you name it, like let's look at a, you know, a a grassroots organization led by black mothers in a community that has been really suffering from gun violence or the mothers of the movement who have organized in response to their children being victims of horrific police violence, or the Black women and women of color who are organizing around the maternal mortality crisis in this country and the fact that they can't get you know, a, health, a racist healthcare system to provide them with adequate prenatal care and that they are dying unnecessarily or suffering pregnancy complications unnecessarily as a result of that. 
or you know, you look at the mothers, and it is mostly mothers who seek safe legal abortion care in this country and are organizing and activating to demand that. There are so many examples of mother's activism that presents a whole array of who mothers are and the complexity of that mother identity. And yet what we enshrine, what we valorize, what we idealize is this model that, you know, Moms for Liberty really strategically taps into. And so I think it is incumbent upon all of us to not buy into this and to start saying, this is not who moms look like <laughs> writ large, and these moms do not speak for me. So, I, you know, I think we really have to challenge that and to really work to lift, lift up some alternative voices of mothers that are actually advocating for the kinds of changes that will make our society better. Yeah. Well, Republicans have always been particularly good at painting a narrative. They, even the concept of pro-life, you know, they're just, they're brilliant at target marketing. And these Moms for Liberty is being run by Republican operatives target marketing. I mean, this goes way beyond protecting kids and it goes into sort of how we feel and what our values are for raising children and families in America. I mean, these people who, like you said, are minority voices could literally reshape the politics that govern our freedoms, our democracy, our parental rights in this country. And it's essentially in service to white supremacy. And you and I both look like women that could be part of Moms for Liberty. And it's people like us who need to be standing up against it because we need to connect with other mothers to shape this country and stand up for these people who really think they're doing good things, but are doing bad things. It's almost like we have to take a page out of their playbook. We have to run for the same things they're running for, school boards, state legislatures, library boards. We need to go to these school board meetings and these library meetings, and we need to fight fire with fire to show there's another group of moms who also love their kids and want to take care of them, but believe the opposite of what these women believe. We need to counter every effort that they make towards banning books and banning people and banning what they consider counter lifestyles or inappropriate conversations. We need to stand up for freedom and against censorship and bigotry, even if we're fighting, especially if we're fighting women who look exactly like us and claim to have the same goals as us. We can't let them take the mantle of good mom. And then if we don't agree with them, paint us as not caring about children. I mean, anything that would lead us down a path to authoritarianism and censorship and sort of government mandated bigotry needs to be met with serious resistance. And I think it is incumbent on mothers to stand up right now against these other people who would take the, the moniker of mother and use it as such a weapon. Absolutely. I mean, one of my guests this season on the podcast said these women are perverting motherhood. And I really yes. believe that that is, that is absolutely the case. And so, you know, on one level, I get it. People are exhausted. We are all exhausted. This is exhausting. <laughs> and we can't back down. And, you know, so here I think is the, the one thing that, that, keeps me you know, in this game and feeling hopeful and confident about the future is that there are so many organizations that are really out there on the ground in community every day, organizing a real counterforce to Moms for Liberty and showing that mothers 
have very different agenda and want real change in this country in ways that actually benefit children, benefit families, and strengthen our society. And so, you know, organizations like Red Wine and Blue that have been out there in conservative communities, suburban communities, and have stopped book bans from taking hold in places like Indiana, you know, like where you would think they might be able to sail through. They've said, no, this, this you know, this is not an agenda. We do not support censorship. We do not support banning books. We want our children to be educated. We want them to have access to a variety of educational materials and critical, seminal, you know, pieces of, of, of literature, they are out there doing that work. There are groups like Moms Demand Action that you referenced earlier, Moms Rising, the Mothers for the Movement, you know, the whole history of amazing Black women's organizing that we go into in our later episodes of this, this season that really show not only the ways that women are bringing their trauma to the forefront to be able to expose and combat systemic racism and systemic, systemic inequity, but the way that they are redefining and changing the conversation about the joy of Black motherhood and the ways that we can center that in our political debate and all be the better for it. So there is lots of opportunities for people to be able to, you know, kind of work through our exhaustion and engage in ways that are meaningful and I would say fun. I mean, the bottom line is that we can find, we are going to get through this by being in community with one another and by taking the kinds of steps that we need to be taking in order to build a society in which all of us can thrive. I mean, at the end of the day, how ignorant do we want American children to be if they can't compete on the world stage because everyone learned real facts and we learned white American facts? You know, it won't work. And it, it isolates us in a way that we don't need to be isolated. I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Julie. I want to direct everyone to White Picket Fence, which just relaunched its fourth season on International Women's Day. So before you go, please tell people how they can find your show and how they can find you in the future um, so they can follow up on all this stuff or find some of these great groups that you're talking about, like Red Wine and Blue. Wonderful. Well, you can listen to uh, White Picket Fence wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Julie K. Kohler1, on Instagram at Julie Kohler Writes, and a lot of my archived articles and links to the show are on my website, which is juliekkohler.com. Thank you. I really appreciate you being here. I was just at an Emily's List event, and the, the theme of the event was how women change the world. And I look at this Moms for Liberty thing, and I think, that ain't it, baby. So... We have to find a better way to do it. And I think this is the first step, talking about it and knowing it's a real problem. Yeah, thanks for being Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Thanks so much for bringing this to your audience's attention. And it was really great to be in conversation with you today. So that was Julie Kohler, host of the White Picket Fence podcast, reminding us that there are some powerful forces out there co-opting our words and our identities in the name of parents' rights and choice, but they don't speak for all of us, even though they are changing the rules for all of us. These groups are banning books and history and even the existence of certain people. But if you don't agree with them or if you push back on them, they will target you as a pedophile or a groomer or indoctrinating. Working closely with the Republican leadership and right-wing media, these moms are creating a world where our reality must conform to their reality. And if we don't push back now, it could take us a generation or longer to undo the damage. 
It is easy to recognize the neo-Nazi filth with their tiki torches and their overt hate speech. It is less easy to recognize the arguably more dangerous groups like Moms for Liberty destroying our public schools and democracy with a good blowout and a Christian cross. We have to meet these women where they are and fight back with everything we have. I want to thank Julie for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now go to a school board meeting and vote against these harpies who would take our freedom. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.